Welcome to Slices, an investing podcast from Hatchet Capital. In this podcast, we talk investing, but we also tell stories that make us laugh and think. To be frank, this is an audio journal for me to work through certain ideas, so expect randomness. But I hope you find it entertaining, and I hope you walk away from every episode learning at least one thing. One of my favorite talks I've ever heard is from Bill Gurley, who gave a presentation called Running Down a Dream. It's an inspirational ode to succeeding and to loving your career. I recommend you listen to it. I'm also going to shamelessly steal a part from it. I'm going to tell you the story about Robert Zimmerman. Robert Zimmerman grew up in Minnesota. From the time he was 10, this kid fell in love with music particularly the popular music at the time, which was folk music. As a teenager, he came from a poor family, so he couldn't buy folk music records. But he found that the record stores had listening sections, and he could just sit there all day listening to record after record. Then he made some friends who also liked folk, and they were a little more well-off, and so he'd, well, he'd steal their records. He was obsessed. And by 1961, this poor kid was 19 years old with a singular mind on folk. Much like Detroit in the 50s or Silicon Valley in the 2010s, he decided if you wanted to be a part of something, you have to be at the epicenter of it. For Zimmerman, that was New York City, the place where his hero, the legendary folk singer Woody Guthrie, lived. So he took a guitar, he took a suitcase, and he had $10 in his pocket, he stuck out his thumb, and he hitchhiked from Minneapolis to New York, a 1,200-mile hitchhike in 1961. That's San Francisco to L.A. four times over. And he made it. And he started hanging out every single day at the folk clubs, morning to night. He studied Woody, but he studied everyone else. He was a mimic. He studied and studied and practiced and practiced, and eventually all of the singers noticed this kid there every night. They started to get to know him and saw he could play. Eventually, one of the famous singers noted that this Zimmerman kid could play any of their songs better than them. He could get the cadence, the tone, the stage work. He could mimic perfectly. Within his first year, he starts getting invited to perform intro sets for these folks. Soon, he's discovered by a record label, and by 1962, he gets to work on his first album. Within one year, he has the biggest record in the country, and by 1963, he's on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial as a headline performer at Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. By this time, he had dropped his name Robert Zimmerman, and he was known simply as Bob Dylan. I love that story because I love the drive. Go listen to that Running Down a Dream speech if you want to hear more about what it means to make it. But I want to use that story and keep going. I want to touch on something that wasn't discussed in that video. I want to talk about what happens immediately after. You see, from 1962 to 1965, Dylan had already made an indelible impression on the music scene blowing in the wind. The times, they are a changing. These weren't just hit songs, they were counterculture. They were the anthems for the civil rights movement and anti-war feelings. This boy, who had idolized folk music day in and day out, had become a literal folk hero himself. Just four years after hitchhiking across the country, Dylan was a star. I can't imagine how it must have felt for it to all have happened seemingly so quickly. But then in 1965, something dramatic happened. Dylan steps onto the stage of the Newport Folk Festival, the biggest stage in folk, 
and perhaps the biggest stage in music at the time, and Dylan does the unthinkable. He doesn't go out with his regular guitar. He pulls out an electric guitar. <laughs> Folk music does not use electric guitars. And that's for non-artists like rockers. You know, them? But Dylan gets on the stage and he starts playing. The festival told him to stop. The crowd starts booing. They start raining, booing, and booing after him. They can't believe it. This was supposed to be their king of folk, and whatever the hell Dylan is playing does not sound good to them. What was he playing, by the way? He was playing Like a Rolling Stone, which would soon become his biggest hit ever. Rolling Stone magazine in 2010 named it the greatest song of all time, and it broke all sorts of conventions. It was a six and a half minute song played on the radio. That doesn't make sense. How do you make a six and a half minute song a hit on the radio? Now, in retrospect, we know that this all works out, but I try to imagine the psychology of that moment. You've spent your whole life idolizing folk music. It's all you've cared about, yet you go on stage and give the proverbial middle finger to your fans. For Dylan, he didn't think that way at all. He shrugged off being booed. He played the show, and that night when he was asked about it, he said, When I asked myself, would I come to hear this tonight? I gotta say, I would. I dig it, you know? I really dig it. He did it for his own reasons, not to satisfy anyone else. You see, Bob Dylan was not afraid. He was not afraid to alienate. He was not afraid to follow what he thought was true, what he thought was best. He was not afraid to stand out. In investing, the idea that one can stand out is almost par for the course. I tend to joke about it, but in our field, calling oneself a contrarian is so common that I think of the character Dash from The Incredibles who said, if everyone is special, then no one is. But it is true in some ways that investing is a deeply contrarian activity, and frankly, it's an unhumble activity. The dominant theory of financial markets since the 1950s is still the efficient market hypothesis, and that's the idea that the price of any financial asset reflects all available information. As follows, efficient market theorists say that no one can plausibly claim to know a price better than the market, and therefore anyone who buys a stock that then goes up is experiencing a quote random walk. In other words, beating the market is simply luck. Therefore, to make an investment is to defy the notion of luck, it's to defy the academic canon. Hmm. Well, most of us can defy the academics anyway, since, you know, what do they know? They're just in their ivory towers, they're not in the arena with their money on the line. Well, okay, still, making an investment is also then to defy the broader market of intelligent participants who are also in the arena with you. In some ways, you're saying, I know better than that hedge fund. I know better than the PhD-developed quant model. It's to say, I know better than my neighbor. It's to say, I see where the world is going more clearly than you. If all of that sounds bold, it's because I think in some ways, the roots of this profession really are bold and somewhat arrogant. Even take our investment histories. They're filled with these Big, bold, contrarian calls. Soros broke the Bank of England. One man broke the Bank of England. Buffett in American Express. All the stories in Michael Lewis's excellent book, The Big Short, on the investors who called the housing crash of 2007. In our field, making that big call, nailing it, that's the stuff of legends. It's our equivalent of being Michael Jordan and hitting the game-winning shot. And who does not want to do that? 
But then that leads me to the question of this episode. The question I'm trying to crack is if the field is meant to be so bold, if this profession is meant to attract the type of disagreeable personality who thinks they don't need the crowd's wisdom, why is it that in the money management industry, all the portfolios end up looking like everybody else? All of the different funds out there end up clumping together in the same names as everybody else. Now, the data isn't perfect, but looking at the reports from Morningstar, Fidelity, and the famed financial journalist Jason Zweig from the Wall Street Journal, we find three interesting things when we ask ourselves that question. The first interesting data point to consider is that the average actively managed fund in the U.S. holds about 160 stocks. Two, maybe somewhat counterintuitively, the funds that beat the market over a longer duration period, so don't look at one year, look at 10 years. The ones that actually beat the market over a 10-year period are never the top performer in any one-year period, and often will have three consecutive years plus of underperformance of the actual market. That's interesting. And number three, over a 15-year period, about 95% of all actively managed funds, 95%. Hedge funds, mutual funds, pension funds have underperformed the market. Ouch. So again, for a profession that's ostensibly bold, why do these funds end up clustering into the same stocks as everyone else? And and why so many stocks? If you have conviction in in an idea, if you've done the deep work, how can you hold hundreds of positions? It defies logic to me that if you did the work and you buy a stock that ended up doubling, well... In a 160-position portfolio, your overall portfolio would only move up less than a percent. If everyone's a contrarian, why does everyone look the same? Especially when 95% end up underperforming. I mean, I would understand if you were outperforming why everyone would cluster, but it so clearly isn't happening. So what is happening? And that's the question I want to explore today. One possibility is to just say that everyone sucks. The industry is filled with charlatans who prey on unsuspecting clients and by and large rob the pension funds and 401ks of Americans. I think that's probably harsh. I think the more simple and proper answer is that the fund management business isn't an investing business. It's a client management business and clients are fickle. Fund managers by and large do not get paid by performance. They get paid by assets under management. The more people that give them money, the higher their compensation. So their incentive then is to collect as much money under management as possible. And unfortunately, clients have a habit of moving their money out of funds at the bottom and into funds at the top, the proverbial buy high, sell low. Now, you can't blame clients for incentivizing the wrong behaviors. If you were selecting a fund to choose from, I doubt you would say who performed the worst this year and select that fund. Lee Lu once remarked that the financial investment industry is the only industry where clients have no way to determine if someone is offering a superior service. If you go into a nice hotel, you know it. If you drive a nice car, you feel it. But if you're analyzing a fund manager, the best you have is a track record, and every track record says past performance is no indication of future performance. Worse, Fidelity shows that selecting the best performing fund in any particular year is the exact worst possible thing you can do. So structurally, clients make the wrong decision consistently, and on the fund side, on the fund side, we find a a almost magnetic-like pool to the center to be similar, to avoid risk. 
See, there will always be the high-flying hot funds in any particular time, like the Kathy Woods of 2020, who crash and burn, but by and large, you'll see a broad middle that clumps together in a herd. And it makes sense if you think about this from the perspective of the job is not to beat the market, the job is to keep your clients. If you look like everyone else, you're less likely to be fired. And the longer you're not fired, the more you're able to earn your management fee. So bigger picture, there's actually structural safety to this clumping. There's two reasons, in fact, to follow the crowd. The first is you might be wrong. There's wisdom in crowds. Look, behavioral psychology shows that humans experience more pain in an equal movement of loss than they experience joy in an equal movement of gain. Humans have what's called a loss aversion bias, making that big call in missing, i.e. shooting the Michael Jordan game winner and clunking it, is far more painful than the reward you get for being right. Michael Burry of the big short fame outsmarted all the big banks, the hedge funds, and called the collapse of the housing market when everyone said that that was impossible. He was right. He hit the Jordan-esque big shot, and his reward? He said it was the worst time in his entire life, and he closed his fund afterwards in disgust. The second reason to structurally clump together is that your time frame for any big call is likely going to be off. In fact, forget a big call. Joel Greenblatt, Joel Greenblatt once said, I expect every stock I buy to go down after I buy it. Unless I believe I have the ability to pick a stock at the precise absolute bottom, I should expect it to go down after I buy it. Now, that makes a lot of sense. It's logically true, but it's emotionally hard to deal with. And if you figured out something really big, it will take time for the market to figure it out too. Michael Burry, again, had his clients screaming at him to pull their money out of his fund just months before the bet actually paid off. For most funds, because the manager's salary depends on the funds staying there, making a big call is a direct way to diverge from the market, and then you see your clients pull their money before your call can ever even pay off. People want linear results. They want to see quarter-by-quarter improvement. You know, Buffett once said, people prefer straight 10s over lumpy 15s, and we'll take lumpy 15s every day. What he was referring to is that in the investment game, results tend to happen in clumps. They are not straight lines. And because people are so addicted to month-by-month, quarter-by-quarter, year-by-year performance, and because the market is constantly giving you a report card every single day, it's hard not to pay attention to the short term. But if you want the lumpy 15 over the straight 10, you have to be willing to endure periods of underperformance in order to get the right long-term overperformance. If you remember the three things I said earlier, one of the things I noted is that the top performing funds in any 10-year period are often underperforming the market for three years straight. That's a really interesting result. So both of these dynamics of being wrong or being off in your timing don't just influence your own confidence or desire to make the leap to make that call. They dramatically influence the confidence of your investors. And with money more liquid than ever, the ability to move around from ETF to mutual fund to private deal with just a tap of your finger on your phone, the industry is more sensitive now than ever to not sticking out in any way. So let's not talk in abstracts. Let's talk about how this applies right now, today. The S&P 500 is an index of the 500 largest companies in the US and is a general proxy for how well the market is doing. 
As we record this, the index is up roughly 20% for the year. Despite the absolute certainty so-called experts spoke of an imminent recession at the start of the year, people's portfolios are largely up. As an aside, remind me to do an episode on how absolutely useless listening to experts predict the economy is. I just want to bookmark that. Now, if you're a professional investor, your goal is to beat the market. So your clients are hoping you'll be up at least 20% on the year and hopefully more. Now, we've talked in an earlier episode that the S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index. In in layman's terms, that means that the index isn't made up of all 500 companies in equal bits. Instead, the index owns a larger percentage of the companies that are bigger in size. So today, our two biggest companies have gotten so big that Apple and Microsoft represent 15% of the entire index. If we extend that out to the top seven companies, what we'll call the Magnificent Seven, we get nearly 30% of the entire index. To put it in another way, for every dollar that purchases an S&P 500 index fund, 30 cents flows to just seven companies, and the remaining 70 cents flows to the other 493. Now that market weighting math is really important, because with that size, their performance disproportionately affects the return of the entire index, both on the way up or, if ever, on the way down. And boy, have they performed. I'm guessing you already know who the seven are, but let's run through them. Apple, up 50% this year. Microsoft, 40%. Google, 50%. Amazon, 55%. Facebook, 150%. Tesla, 150%. And NVIDIA, the new AI darling, is up a whopping 200% on the year. Those are home runs. Absolute home runs. But what about the rest of the market? If you don't disproportionately flow money to those seven, what does it look like? Well, the S&P also has an unweighted index. It's not as popular, but that's where they track the performance of all 500 companies equally. In that scenario, from January 1st to June 1st, 2023, we're actually negative for the year. That means that the collective 493 other companies outside of our Magnificent Seven are by and large struggling. Now, can you imagine your client's reaction if you're down for the year because you're in one of the other 493 companies and your client's neighbor is in the most obvious stocks like Google and Facebook and they're killing it? That's tough. But I want to defend that fund manager who is bold enough to not be in the Magnificent Seven today. And I have a caveat here, which is that I own several of the Magnificent Seven, so clearly I still see value in some of those names. But let me make the bear case. First, what are these seven companies collectively worth? The Magnificent Seven are worth about $11 trillion collectively. That's equivalent to the entire GDP of Japan. Wait, wait, not just Japan, Germany. Wait, 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 not even just Germany, India. Japan, Germany, and India combined. That's a mind-boggling number. Okay, well... They are amazing companies. Maybe they are worth more than Japan, Germany, and India. What do they bring to the table? How much do they earn? They earn 7% of the S&P 500's total earnings. So they collect 30 cents on the dollar, but only provide back seven. Well, okay. There's another argument here, which is that these are superior growth companies. Even if they earn seven today, they're going to continue to grow to a point where they'll be earning a lot more than that. And these are businesses that are so quality that any price is justified. So I want to reflect on history because this has happened before. In the 60s, there were a collection of 50 businesses lovingly titled the Nifty 50. 
This time period actually standardized the terminology of growth company. It also introduced into the lexicon buy and hold and blue chips. These were businesses that were so primed for success that you couldn't lose money on them at any price. Just buy them and hold them. They're blue chips. The businesses are great. I mean, even looking at this list today, these are truly fantastic companies who 60 years later, many are still dominant. We're talking Amex, Budweiser, Coca-Cola, GE, McDonald's, Walmart, Disney, Pepsi, the list goes on. But for over a decade, this buy at any price mentality ended up driving prices so high that after the 1973 stock market crash, it took an average of 15 years for those companies to get back to even. And we saw that same thing in 1999 as well. If you happen to pick the two best dot-com companies, which I remind you would not have been easy, you would have had to avoid Yahoo and avoid AOL and Pets.com and Webvan, but if you had the foresight to say a tiny online bookstore in Seattle and also another software company in Seattle, Amazon and Microsoft, would become dominant, well, for Amazon, the price they reached in 1999 It was not touched again until 2009, a 10-year period where Amazon 12x their sales, they launched Amazon Prime, they invented the Kindle, they created AWS, and for that entire 10 years, if you had bought in 1999, you would have been negative. Microsoft is even more bleak. You would have had to wait from 1999 until 2016. You see, picking a quality company is valuable, but only at the right price. So today, our Magnificent Seven, I believe, are truly fabulous businesses, but at some point, the price of something no longer matches its value, if its value, even if its value is wonderful. To be rudimentary, if I told you that oranges are a healthy source of vitamin C, so go buy some, I wouldn't be wrong. But if tomorrow an orange costs $100, I couldn't in good faith tell you you must buy the orange because it's quality vitamin C. I'd say there's other ways to get vitamin C. In fact, buy that kiwi for 10 cents and get even more vitamin C. In my world, vitamin C is cash that companies produce. And while everyone might be bidding up the prices of oranges, the reality is there's plenty of other fruits or businesses that give equal or more vitamin C and or cash. There's a price for everything. So I want to read you a postmortem from Forbes after the Nifty 50 crashed. I'll quote it here. What held the Nifty 50 up? The same thing that held up tulip bulb prices in a long ago Holland. Popular delusions in the madness of crowds. The delusion was that these companies were so good, it didn't matter what you paid for them. Their inexorable growth would bail you out. Obviously, the problem was not with the companies, but with the temporary insanity of institutional money managers, proving again that stupidity well-packaged can sound like wisdom. It was so easy to forget that no sizable company could possibly be worth over 50 times normal earnings. What a quote. It's interesting to hear that no sizable company could possibly be worth over 50 times normal earnings when in our Magnificent 7 today, Tesla trades at 70 times earnings and Nvidia trades at 200 times earnings. So I come back to my question. Why are professional investors so uniform when they're meant to be bold? The incentives simply just don't make sense to go against the crowd. Perhaps this entire podcast could just be boiled down to the one famous sentence, the old saying that goes, if a client's portfolio goes down because they invested in Apple, they say, what's wrong with Apple? 
If a client portfolio goes down because you've invested their money in a no-name company, they say, what's wrong with you? So what are my lessons? For fund managers actually looking to beat the market, to go against the grain in a real way, you have to think of three things. The first, how are you going to structurally insulate yourself so you have the opportunity to pursue your ideas? Two, how can you be clear with your clients about strategy? And three, maybe you don't have clients at all. For the first one, structurally insulating yourself, I was rereading Buffett's biography and a paragraph paragraph stood out that hadn't previously stood out to me before. When Buffett was launching his first fund, he had strict rules. If you were going to invest with him, he made it very clear at the start, here's a few things you have to know. One, he had no interest in any of your thoughts on the stock market. In fact, he made it clear he had no interest in talking to you or telling you what he had invested the fund in. He would never tell you a name that he was invested in. He simply wanted no input, and he didn't want you to even know what he was doing because he didn't want the distraction. Two, on one day and one day only, on December 31st, you would hear from him. You'd get a letter from him that would describe the results of the funds, but no quarterly reports, just one day, December 31st, and you'd have no details on the individual names he was invested in on your behalf. On that day, you could withdraw money or add money. Other than that, your money was locked up the rest of the year. You know, when I first read that, I thought that was harsh. I thought this was a man who was simply being secretive. Now I think he was prescient. He understood implicitly the pressure of clients and structurally set it up in a way to avoid the outside noise as much as possible. See if that's something that you want to do. Number two, I said, be clear with your clients about strategy. Some funds say, hey, we only invest in financials or we only invest in tech. That clarity helps divorce you from the broad questions about how the overall market is doing. And having a specific strategy like that helps prime your clients to know that you are doing something different. For us at Hatchet, we're generalists. We believe markets work in cycles and opportunity can show up in different industries at different times. It's harder to be specific, but you can still talk to your clients and give them some guideposts. For example, Buffett used to say, hey, we do not invest in the top stocks. So if the market is doing good, you're likely going to see underperformance from us. But if the market is doing bad, we'll assuredly be outperforming. That type of guidepost just helps the client understand what to look out for and whether you're on track. And then the number three option is you just don't have clients. It's unfortunate to say, but one thing that all the top investors share is that they eventually close down their funds. And it wasn't because they were rich. Uh, Most of them were already plenty rich before, but they closed down the fund because it seems like managing money for others is emotional and difficult. And so if you really want to be a hero and make that game winning shot, you have to be willing to figure out how to stand on your own. In conclusion, Buffett once said, you can be a successful You can be successful holding a rock concert, and you can be successful holding a ballet. Just don't advertise a ballet and then hold a rock concert. To beat the market, you have to be willing to be different than the market. You have to be able to trust yourself and your fundamental work that you've done. But it turns out in the investment business, the ideas aren't the hard part. The hard part is creating the structure that allows you to realize the value of the idea. If you've pre-planned how you can do that through insulating yourself, communicating proper expectations with clients, or avoiding clients altogether, then you can be like Bob Dylan. You can have the idea, and you can look in the mirror and say, would I want to hear this tonight? And the answer is, I would. I dig it, man. I dig it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Slices. Until next time.